0: Hey everyone, this is Cabain. This will be the last of three videos on biblical hermeneutics through the lens of an exegesis of a little detail in the Gospel of Mark. But before getting into the main portion of, that, of this discussion, uh, if you find these videos edifying, please consider becoming a patron. Even a monthly contribution of $5 or less is instrumental in facilitating the continued production of quality content and engagement with the audience. The first two tiers provide access to select premium content, though my preference is really to keep most content available for a general audience. And the third tier, on top of the content made available in the first two, guarantees at least one hour per month of discussion over Zoom or equivalent, which you can take advantage of every month if that's what you would like to do. So if you want to support this channel and you want to ensure that that most of the content continues to be available to a general audience, and that is my intention, um, I'm for sure I'm not about to take it off, uh, but that is supported by the patronage, uh, then please do consider becoming a patron at any of the tiers, um, but only, please, if you're in a financially sound position. Equivalent YouTube memberships are also available, uh, though the price is somewhat higher because YouTube takes a higher proportion monthly. Uh, so, the other note about this is that I think if I get about 15, to 20 more patrons, I'll be able to remove ads entirely for everybody. I know that they're frustrating for those who do get ads. Um, I would provide ad-free versions for patrons but unfortunately there's just no way to do that at present though i think there will be soon but my hope is that um i'll be able to remove them all entirely within the next few months so if that's something that you'd like to see uh please consider becoming a patron but thank you everyone who's who's already contributed and thank you uh for everyone who is a member of this audience i really do appreciate uh, your participation here so let's get into the main discussion So when you recognize the relationship, the spring of the water of life, or the well, to the inclusion of Gentiles, or the extension of divine life through God's children into more and more nations, and when you recognize that this is described as being realized in its most glorious way in the Messianic Age, specifically, ...from the divine presence that flows through the water that wells up in the center of the temple. That is, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary. It flows out, gives life to the fish. And when you realize that that image is related to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's related to the the inversion of the judgment of the five cities of the plain, implicitly through the reference to the Dead Sea in Ezekiel 47, explicitly through Isaiah 19, which refers to four out of five cities being redeemed and only one being called the City of uh, Destruction. Uh, the connection, which at first seemed to make very little sense, begins to make a great deal of sense. The tomb of Christ is the Holy of Holies. The Gospel of John is quite straightforward on that. I think it actually has uh, many theological implications for um, the Paschal Feast that we have in the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, That's a topic uh, perhaps for another video, perhaps not for a video at all. Uh, I think I've talked about it a bit in my live streams. Um, But if if the tomb of Christ is the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies is the place from which the spring of the water of life wells up and flows out to give life to the nations, well, then the correspondence between the tomb of Christ in Mark 16 and the well, which has a round stone over it, which is rolled away to give uh, drink to sheep in Genesis 29, well, that actually is beginning to come into quite sharp focus. We begin to see that Gentiles are included in this symbolic correspondence and when you recognize that connection well then you realize that a lot of jesus's language makes sense in that light as well for example in john uh, chapter 10 jesus says there are other sheep who are not of this fold them also i must bring so that they may be one fold and one shepherd Uh, jesus's ministry to the gentiles is something of a disputed point some people have taken jesus's words to mean that he has no ministry to the gentiles which is contrary to the apparent sense of much of his actual work in the, the the gospels especially the Synoptic Gospels, Uh, it it mentions his uh, miracles done uh, for a Roman in the Gospel of John. Uh, He is mentioned as uh, being revered by Greeks at the festival prior to his crucifixion. Uh, But it looks like in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's the most straightforward on the geography of this, Uh, it looks like Jesus, uh, after he undergoes a tough series of episodes with Uh, Israel's leadership uh, he has the uh, there's the narrative of the Canaanite woman who uh, says that she is content with crumbs from the table of the master and then after that Jesus goes and he feeds the four thousand with not just crumbs but with bread now the location of the four thousand well this is a Gentile location this makes additional sense given that Jesus calls attention to the fact that seven uh seven barrels are left from or baskets I think um, it are left from the feeding of the 4,000, in contrast to and in relation to the 12, which are left from the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the both of them are feedings of bread and fish. We've noted before how fish correspond to Gentiles. Bread, they correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 loaves of face bread on the um, a table of face bread, appropriately named in the tabernacle and the temple. So the feeding of bread and fish to both Jew and Gentile signifies the feeding of Jew and Gentile to each other. That is, they are knit together in one body. If You are what you eat. You eat the same thing. You become each other. You dwell in each other. Which is why marriage feasts Our marriages are associated with feasts. One flesh. So you're going to eat One flesh. And it signifies the reality that it is not just the individuals being bound together, but their respective families as well. They are joined together as agents and representatives of those larger organisms. All of this is coming into play when we're dealing with the theme of the Gentiles in the Gospels and through the Gospels in the Torah and the Prophets. We see in Genesis chapter 48 that it is prophesied of Ephraim. Ephraim is the elder uh, I shouldn't say elder. He is the heir of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, or Jacob, actually um, blesses Joseph's children in their reverse order of their birth. He crosses over his arms in doing so. But Ephraim is the heir of Joseph, and thus the northern kingdom, which is associated with Joseph as intimately as the southern kingdom is associated with Judah, the northern kingdom, instead of being personally called Joseph, when the prophets address that nation, they address it by the name Ephraim, typically. And we are told that Ephraim will become a multitude of nations. We're told earlier that Abraham will be a father of many nations. And this association between Ephraim and the Gentiles is something which is developed throughout the Pentateuch and the prophets. It's very interesting thread. I haven't actually worked out its exact inner logic yet, but there's a great deal there. It's certainly in the New Testament, and it is certainly in the prophets. The way that it works is something I'm still kind of working through, but there's no question that it's there. For example, uh, you uh, you can find, if you're looking for a New Testament example, when Paul quotes Uh, The passage from Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those who are not beloved, I will call beloved. So that in the very place it was said to them, not my people, there it will be said, sons of the living God. Uh, That is a reference to the um, regathering and inclusion of the northern kingdom. Uh, A friend of mine pointed out to me that in Jeremiah chapter 3, which describes the gathering of all nations into the city of God where God's glory is directly present, they don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore, it's just God's glory which is immediately present, Um, uh, my friend pointed out to me that is given in the context of the relationship between the two houses of Israel, Uh, and we are told that it is the northern kingdom which is the first to be gathered, and that they are the instrument for the final gathering of the Judahites. Uh, This twofold model is something which is developed, I would argue, in Romans 9-11, to where the remnant of Israel, that is, the Judahites, the Jews, Israel according to the flesh in the first century, they are the means by which the Gentiles hear the gospel. Those Gentiles, who are the many nations, corresponding to Ephraim, Which is why the Gentiles are called the ten men in Zechariah who take hold of the tassel, the wing of the Judahite, because God is present with him. Paul quotes that or echoes that in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 14. Um, Well, those ten men correspond to the ten tribes, um, even as they signify the Gentile world. And... Uh, As the Gentiles are gathered in and leavened and sanctified, uh, then ultimately we are told that it provokes the flesh of Jesus, that is the Judahites, the Jews, to jealousy so that all are reunified and reconciled and the whole family is um, uh, brought to peace in the Messianic King. That is a programmatic narrative which is, I would I've written uh, stuff on that in Isaiah, uh, but uh, what I hadn't noticed is that it is definitely there in Jeremiah chapter 3 as well. When we look at it through the lens of the northern and the southern kingdoms, that's a very important correspondence which um, uh, is is, uh, underappreciated relative to its significance in the narrative arc and uh, symbolism of the Bible. Mention it here because in the Gospel of John, when Jesus meant when Jesus mentions a sheepfold which is two and there being other sheep, he is undoubtedly making reference to this kind of language which is used of the two houses of Israel in the prophet Ezekiel. Now in the Gospel of John, Jesus already has made extensive reference to Ezekiel. In John chapter 3, for example, talking about the uh, uh, rebirth of water and the spirit, there's no question that if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 36 and following, that is where you're going to find much of this language and many of these themes. Uh, This is the uh, whole idea of rebirth its rooted and grounded in the history of the Exodus. And there's the new Exodus, which is prophetically filled in Jesus and realizing us in baptism. And that's what's going on in the uh, uh, story of John chapter three, which is why, of course, after John three, the first thing that we, after the discussion with Nicodemus, the first thing we hear is about the, uh, the various ministries of baptism that Jesus and John the Baptist had. It's, it's amazing to me, not only how many people miss that, but how long I, you know, in thinking about whether whether this was a reference to baptism or not, it's amazing to me how long I didn't actually realize that the most obvious clue is that John explicitly <laughs> narrates baptism immediately after the discussion of rebirth of water in the spirit. Uh, in any case, um, the language of the sheepfold, which is twofold, with the northern and the southern kingdoms, we know, in light of the whole Bible, both Old and New Testaments, that this is about the unity of Israel and the nations, because uh, of the reasons that I've just gone into. I've talked about this in other videos. It's, it's, this is probably one of the central themes of the Bible, so I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to exhaust it or get anywhere near exhausting it in one video, no matter how long-winded the video is. Um, but Uh, this is one of the upshots of the identification that we've made in mark 16 in genesis chapter 29 now we can identify the sheep that there are there in genesis chapter 29 now we know the relationship of the gentiles to the sheep and that leads us to ask additional questions of the text which in turn provide additional evidence for things that we were already inclined to see and they help us ask new questions and uh form new interpretive hypotheses I would be inclined to call something with one piece of exegetical evidence, one connection, a interpretive hypothesis. And then you start, um, you start thinking through the rest of the Bible. And if there are other things which glom onto that and they thread through very neatly, then it looks like it's actually there. If it's very difficult, if you have to force things, then maybe it's time to keep working. Um, now that is a it is less of a science. in fact science itself is less of a science you know of a a kind of a a boring dry systematic method uh separated from from intuition and 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 all that lovely stuff Uh, but people like to say interpretation is more of an art than a science you know well science is more of an art than a science um but i think you understand what i'm saying here that this is a Habit, a pattern of exegesis that really cannot be taught by a set of rules. It's really something that. Practice is going to make perfect. It is something that you got to learn gradually over time. You just get into the rhythm of it, just as you would get into the rhythm of anything. It's a particular way of thinking, a habit of threading particular ideas together in a specific way. And the interesting thing is that as you thread these biblical ideas together in this way, you will realize that as you walk through the world, the same God who wrote the Bible also wrote the stuff of the world, and the world is remarkably, remarkably, subject to interpretation by the same pattern. And it can be remarkably productive um, just in, in in intuiting the way things may or ought to be. Um, giving an example would get into whole other issues which I don't really want to get into at the moment. Um, but the one thing I am willing to say in this video is that uh, in certain of the sciences, uh, the kind of theoretical development of the discipline has stalled. I mean, if you look at physics over the past uh, several decades, uh, as as far as the kind of empirical dialogue that data is meant to have with theory, it's effectively not happening. We have the standard model, which has been largely confirmed, uh, and yet the... Major questions, which were being asked a generation and a half ago, are still the major questions that are being asked today. Um, it's kind of ossified. I think part of the job of de stuff like this is to learn to ask different questions in new, different ways. As Lee Smolin has pointed out in his book, The Trouble with Physics, one of my favorite books of all time. Um, it's, it's really an, an ex- extraordinary book. Um, just, it's interesting as to the science itself it's very interesting as to the method it's very insightful as to the nature of the scientific enterprise um, and, and Smolin I'm very sympathetic with because he is a fan of Fairbend, Paul Fairbend, um against method and was actually a personal friend of his and actually knows that there are philosophers of science whose name um, is, is not Karl Popper um, no disrespect to uh, 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 Karl Popper uh, but that's totally off topic I may well actually you know, split this video into when I, you know, edit it. Um, but uh, interpretation is something that um, is developed over time, not by the memorization of rules, but really by continuing practice, by being willing, in a sense, in a specific way to experiment, by being willing to say... Well, I think this may connect to this, even if you aren't completely sure. Now, there's a boundary which is the tradition, but the tradition is our profession of the one God and Trinity. In other words, not specific exegetical information. This text must mean this. Not usually, at least. But there are many different ex- interpretations of text which could potentially, or which do harmonize with our teaching about who God is and what God has done, but which may or may not be The actual way in which God has expressed himself in scripture. I hope I'm being clear about. About what exactly I mean there. Um, So. uh, It's. And the most important thing I think. In developing that pattern. That skill. Is total Bible saturation. You really do have to know the Bible. And not just the bits that most people know. Um, You know. I think I know the Bible in an above-average way, but there's so much in there. (laughs) There's so much in there that I am really not sufficiently familiar with. Um, And that's both frustrating and uh, exciting. I mean, there's a great deal more that I know I haven't really dug into and that I know is not just filmed with insights about the passage itself, but, for example, say, Leviticus... uh, Leviticus 26. I couldn't tell you what was in Leviticus 26. I know that in Leviticus 26... Actually, I think it's the blessings and curses. I think it's the blessings and curses of the covenant, but I'm not sure. Um, if I got that right, that I, I promise you I did not pre-plan that in some kind of corny, narcissistic way. <laughs> um, but I know that in the text that, whose content I'm not particularly acquainted with, that... When I do get acquainted with it, there's going to be lots and lots of stuff that I learn, not only about those texts, but about texts that I'm already acquainted with. I know that I'll learn new things about John, about Matthew, about Genesis, about Isaiah, so on and so forth. Uh, the Bible, every passage, every verse, to draw an image, I think is from Irenaeus, um, is both a door and, this is exact image, just a riff on, on what he says, it's both a door and a key, but the thing is, the keys, the key to one door is in a very different and far dislocated verse than the door itself. And the key that we find in the verse in question opens a door far dislocated from the verse in which you find the key. And when time one begins to see the network of correspondences and one begins to see the way that, the, the reason that the Bible was produced this way. Uh, so uh, is a great deal of, of just, honestly, just, fun in the Bible um, I, I think the Bible uh, is more fun than than it's given credit for and I don't think it's just you know well you know I'm an idiosyncratic person you know, you know maybe I am but I think God has written the Bible in such a way that um, his people his and by his people I mean the human creature who he himself invented and wired I think human beings in general even those who wouldn't think of themselves as academic or theologically inclined or even religiously inclined. I think uh, when one begins to get into the Bible, one begins to just be attracted to it and and, and drawn to continuing to study it. Um, Anyway, I think there, there are a couple other things I might want to say about this. I was going to talk a little bit more about the theme of water in the Joseph story, but I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep this as... Uh, probably one video, Um, and maybe I'll split it into two, but I'm going to save the water for another video. And uh, what I will say is kind of add a postscript on a possible implication for the connection of Genesis 29 with Mark 16. So uh, the other Gospels, if my checking was correct, because I did check to see if large stone was used in the other Gospels, and the Greek words large large stone and roll away is the same in the LXX of Genesis 29 and in the Greek of Mark 16, one of the questions which this may well help illumine is the way that Mark 16 is written. So obviously the conventional view within the academy is that Mark 16, 9, 20 is a later edition that uh, the original manuscript of the Gospel of Mark either ended in Mark 16, 8 or the original ending of mark is lost because the way that scrolls are designed they tend to break at the beginning and end and uh i recently realized that you know that that particular fact could just as easily be applied to the breaking off of the ending of mark that we have in the alexandrian manuscript tradition so that may the explanation for why there are certain anomalies in the Alexandrian tradition and not in other manuscript families it may well be as simple as that. An early scroll broke at the end, and that's what happened. But as you read Mark 16, uh, 1 to 20, when you read it all as an integrated narrative, and I think the manuscript evidence is very, very strong in favor of 16, to 20, not to mention the fact that despite our earliest manuscripts being Alexandrian manuscripts, they seem to reflect awareness of the existence of this text. There are spaces in the manuscript indicating that the scribe was aware that this resurrection narrative was a reality, which already mitigates the value of the of Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus as witnesses to the non-existence of the ending of Mark. But also the significance and importance of the relative date of a manuscript is its witness to the state of the New Testament text at a given time. The fact that it is the earliest physical manuscript we have is interesting, but as a matter of textual criticism, it is not ultimately the most significant point. Because we know that Mark 16, 9-20 is quoted widely in patristic writers prior to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, across a wide range of areas. So that establishes that the text existed very early. But if you read it internally, some of the arguments against Mark 16, 90, 20 being authentic are just um, specious. The idea that you know this has unique non-Markan terminology, well, if you look at uh, um, uh, Nicholas Lund's book, he shows how specious that is uh, in terms of what we would expect given the fact that this is uh, – that almost none of the in mark actually narrate a resurrection and some of this language actually a lot of this language would only be appropriate in the narrative of a resurrection and when you take into account the number of unique words that you would expect in just any pericope in general it really isn't anything extraordinary the number of uh of, of one time or two time words that you find in mark 16 9 to 20. i think probably the most persuasive internal argument against its authenticity is the way the narrative frame appears to shift Nevertheless, one would expect, if this were at the work of a forger, that he might do a little bit of a better job um, tying Mark 16, 9 to 20, into the pre-existing and established narrative frame. For example, if one is going to use this kind of methodology about what one would expect a scribe to do with the manuscript, a methodology about which I've uh, expressed my skepticism, but is common in text criticism. So if we're going to use it for the sake of argument, We have someone who has Mark 16.8 in front of him. He's not happy with the way that it ends, and he wants to produce an ending which fills out the narrative. Well, why doesn't he narrate Galilee appearances? He knows that Galilee has been the area which has been identified, seems to reflect a bit of chutzpah, to instead ignore the Galilee appearance, and instead focus entirely on Jerusalem. It seems to me, actually, that it's the kind of literary chutzpah which makes sense better in terms of the pen of the actual author of the text where he knows what he's doing and he knows the intentionality with which he's crafting his story and he is not trying to produce a text which is supposed to be anything other than what it really actually is now is this the strongest argument in the bag no but part of his purpose is um to uh, undermine the whole credibility of this methodological what would our scribe do in X situation and using that to adjudicate between manuscript evidence and such. So the manuscript evidence is quite straightforward. I think, I've made that argument, James Snap has made it far more cogently and robustly than I have. Nicholas Lunn in his book on the long ending of Mark has made it more cogently and robustly from a manuscript perspective than I have. Um, So what, what the narrative as we have it We want to explain a couple things. First, why does Mark decide to record the word of the angel with reference to Galilee if he has no intention of referring to any appearances besides the ones that took place in Jerusalem? Well, this I don't think is all that difficult of a question to answer. I think the purpose here is to give a link with the beginning of Mark's gospel, which has a special place for Galilee. And the beginning of Mark's gospel... We have the word that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He proclaimed the gospel of God. And this is where we have his first proclamation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then he says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. So the explicit reference to Galilee ties the end of the gospel in with the beginning of the gospel. So as to establish Jesus's calling as that which is being fulfilled in the narrative which follows. I think Mark also uses this saying because, number one, he is conservative. He does not want to invent sayings in anyone's mouth. And what he wants to do is to further develop the theme and complete the theme of the way of the Lord and those who go before the apostles and those who follow the proclamation of the gospel of the way of the Lord, which is the major theme of the book of Isaiah, that he opened. His gospel with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, Uh, as it is written in Isaiah prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And it is the way of the Lord, which is unveiled in the messianic work. And it is the way of the Lord in which anyone at all finds what we call in Christian theology salvation, because the way of the Lord is the way of the Lord. It is God's way of being. And I'm I mean, this is a major biblical theme. God says to Abraham, walk before me, be perfect. There's the way of the garden, the way into the Garden of Eden. Moses' face becomes glorious when God walks in front of him and Moses is behind him. He sees his back, but not his face. And actually, the word for uh, a discussion on the subtle matters of the Torah is halakha. Uh, and that comes from halak meaning walk. So the idea of abiding by and in the way of the Lord, becoming attuned to his pattern of being and thus attaining to the wisdom, which is the inner essence of the Torah and the inner essence of Christ himself. That's the major biblical theme that I think John wants to develop with reference to Jesus. So that's how the gospel of Mark begins. And Mark, Does not want to, he's not willing to invent a saying. And the saying that he has, which allows him to complete that theme, is the saying that comes from the voice of the angel Go to tell his disciples, Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. Jesus precedes the apostles, goes before them, they follow him, and then they act as the heralds of the king who has come to Zion. Now, in Isaiah, it is the God of Israel who goes before his redeemed people. This is, of course, the glory cloud. And who is it that is crowned in Isaiah 40 to 55? Well, it is the God of Israel. Isaiah 52, 7 speaks of from eye to eye. They see God returning to Zion. And what is it that happens on Zion? We have the coronation as king. It is thus in that next chapter that we have the suffering servant who is uh, afflicted and who is sent to away from the land of the living, despite having done no wrong. He prolongs his days. He sees his seed becoming married to Jerusalem so that Jerusalem is no longer barren, but produces a multitude of children for Abraham. That's the major theme in Isaiah. And Mark is developing that with Jesus as the visible revelation of Israel's God, something which Isaiah himself has developed because if you pay attention very closely to the text, you will realize that Isaiah 7 about Emmanuel is part of a narrative, a narrative which is very deliberately and specifically echoed with reference to the narrative arc of the suffering servant in Isaiah 40 to 55. It's not something I made up. This is something which is there in the text. And it is something which has to be dealt with by anybody who believes that Jesus has nothing to do with the actual uh, narrative arc of the Hebrew Bible that he's not Israel's Messiah. In other words, and it must be dealt with by those who believe that these are just made up fictitious texts which are fragmented and thrown together uh, haphazardly without any overarching uh, order or design. Um, So that I think is an aspect of the uh, reason that Mark chooses to refer to this Galilee appearance. Another interesting point that I would want to make in this uh, in this vein is that Mark 1, 9, we hear about, or Mark 1, uh, pardon me, it's Mark 1, I believe it's 14 and following where Jesus proclaims the gospel of God, time is fulfilled, and so forth. Um, uh, Jesus' proclamation of the gospel at the beginning of Mark, if you follow my argument that this is one of the things which is being echoed by the Galilee reference in 16.7. This is a subtle, if not decisive, but it is something to consider. It is a point in favor of the unity of 16.9-20 with the preceding passages and with the whole gospel in turn. Because the passage that I suggested was being wrapped up and tied together with the Galilee reference was Mark 14. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He does so in the immediate context of John's being sent into prison. And John is, of course, John the Baptist. He is the one who is baptizing a baptism of repentance. And what is it that we are told at the end of Mark in Jesus's words? Jesus says to his apostles, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And then he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now here we have all of the themes in turn which have been, uh, uh, which were developed at the beginning of Mark. Uh, we have proclaim the gospel. Proclaim and gospel are both there. But also, as Jesus went into Galilee at the beginning, now at the end of Mark, Jesus says, you go into all the world." As I was in Galilee, you go to the world. Moreover, believe the gospel, repent and believe the gospel was there at the beginning of uh, uh, of Mark's uh, narrative in Jesus' words. And here at the end of Mark, uh, we have the statement, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, which is an important point because Mark begins... With a narrative of John's ministry. Which is a baptism of repentance. Jesus then says that. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name. They will cast out demons. Well what is it that happens there? At the beginning of Mark. We have among his first miraculous acts. uh, Exorcisms. In fact I think that is Jesus's. Uh, First mighty act. And we have the statement that if you lay your hands on anyone, they will be, uh, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. That's what Jesus says. Well, at the beginning of Mark, it is not only that Jesus does exorcisms and heals the sick, but we are specifically told that Jesus heals the sick with reference to the hand says in Mark 131 that Jesus came and took her that is Simon's Peter's mother-in-law by the hand lifted her up the fever left her she began to serve them and then in Mark 140 and following specifically 141 Jesus stretches out his hand and causes the leper to be clean so it seems to me there's Uh, There are things here which do not immediately seem to me to have a corresponding referent here But it is not a repetition. It is something which corresponds and I think we have a Very substantial number of correspondences here between the beginning and end of Mark and actually um, There are quite a few more than I realized were were present that when I began this uh, miniature discussion so In relation to Genesis 29, the reason that I began the discussion about the end of Mark's gospel is because I think the way that Mark's narrative structure works in chapter 16 uh, seems to follow the pattern of Genesis 29 uh, fairly closely. In Mark 16, we have a very vivid narrative which narrates uh, something which takes place over a very short period of time narratively speaking, as in it takes place over uh, only a few hours rather than months or years or whatever. Uh, in Mark 16, we have the description of what happens on one Sunday morning. We have these women, they go to the tomb. Uh, it's on the first of the week. It's very early. The sun risen. Uh, they're asking who's going to roll away the stone. They saw the stone was already rolled back. And then the phrase which got us started with all this, it was very large. Uh, they see the young man. The, it's sometimes This is a description that is sometimes used for an angel. Um uh all of this happens, and then uh, he tells them to go, tell the disciples of Peter he's going to Galilee, and then it says they went out, they fled from the tomb, trembling in astonishment and seized them. He said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so some people say, Well, here this is a contradiction with the other gospels, because they said nothing then now the very fact that this is being written, okay, okay, Mark is we know the reader does not have to be told that yes, eventually they said something to someone. Okay. This is one of those things where the text is pretty straightforward, but people have trouble, you know, reading it for what it actually says. What it's saying is that they come to the tomb. They're really astonished, and they rush away. And as they're rushing, remember this is early in the morning. This is dawn. People are started. They're getting out. They're, uh, uh, this is after the Sabbath. Okay, so now they're going to uh, go out from their homes. They're going to go about their business. Now, as they're going about their business, this is Jerusalem. This is the major city. This is the central city in Judea. There are all these people who are who are fucking around. And as they're fucking around, the women are rushing down the street. And they're rushing down the street. Uh, and this has been a, a pretty eventful Passover. Okay, so Passover means there's going to be a lot of people there. You're going to have guests. You're going to have family. You're going to have your crazy uncle. You're going to have your annoying cousins. Everyone's there for Passover. Annoying time of year. It's been a really crazy Passover. You, uh, This major prophet got there the week before. People were expecting the Messianic kingdom. He was executed. His disciples have been scattered. People know, roughly speaking, who has been said to have been around. So you see these women, who at least some people in the city know, have been associated with Jesus, who was just executed. And the charge on which he was executed on the Roman side was treason, though Pilate knew it was a trumped-up charge, but that's the official charge, and you know, you gotta play out your scenario. So, yes, it looks quite suspicious when you have all of these women known to have been associated with this condemned and now executed criminal who are rushing at top speed through the middle of this very overpopulated at this point in time, full city, at the most important liturgical time of Israel's festival year, at the beginning of the workday, after the conclusion of the Sabbath, which, by the way, was an extra important Sabbath because of its closeness to Passover. So it is not really a strange uh, or unusual It is not anything that is ambiguous as to what Mark means when he says they said nothing to anyone. <laughs> what were they afraid of? Well, in part, I think they were afraid that they were going to get nabbed by someone. I mean, this is suspicious behavior. I mean, this is, uh, and they're running through the middle of the city. So what does it mean? It means they didn't say anything to anyone as they were running back to tell the disciples. I mean, that's the whole point, right? What are they running to do? Why are they running They didn't intend to tell anyone, just like, why not just uh, walk off quietly? Obviously, they meant to tell people because we're reading this right now. And that would have been obvious by the very fact that we're reading. Even if we didn't have any other Gospels and we say Mark ended with verse 8 and uh, it was the first Gospel written and they didn't have an idea of a canon. Everyone would have known that they told people because we're reading the story. So how did we get the story? I mean, obviously, these women are not the authors of the Gospel collectively is not their coming out story. <laughs> it's just, I, you know, we spent a little time on this, but it's it's a, such a, it's an argument here all the time. How could, how can Mark be correct in saying they said nothing to anyone, and then the other Gospels say they did, they told the disciples. Well, it's it's one of those things which is just, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Um, All love to you folks who made this argument, but It's time to put this one to bed, ladies and gentlemen. My argument with respect to the actual narrative structure of the text goes back to Genesis 29. Uh, We know that Mark is making reference to Genesis 29, not only verbally with reference to the large stone, but the connection that has been made, that is the tomb of Jesus and the well of Jacob, uh, turns out to be very, very productive in terms of looking at what follows out from the correspondence between these two objects. I mean, if you look at the narrative structure of Genesis 29, uh, we see something quite interesting. We see that there is a uh, roughly similar kind of narrative structure in that we have a uh, description of a of something which happened within a relatively short period of time, something that happened within a single day So Genesis uh, 29. Uh, verse 1, Jacob went on his journey, came to the people of the land of the east. Then he saw the well in the field, and then so on. describes the conversation he had. This is his first meeting with Rachel, who is his uh, bride-to-be, if he meets her at a, at a well, as we've discussed. And then he has this meeting with Laban. And that goes all the way to uh, um, a verse, uh, I think it's about verse uh, 15. Now, from this point onwards... Specifically from verse, after verse 19. So from verse 20 onwards. Before this point, not 1 to 19, we've got things which have happened in a period of hours. Okay, Like Mark 16, 1 to 8. Now after this, we have a description of things that take place over a decade of time. The narrative is now massively telescoped. Relative to what was going on in the first 19 verses. So when we recognize that Mark has begun his narrative of the resurrection. With a reference to Genesis 29. And he intends for us to see this reference. This intertextuality. There's a reason that it is quote unquote hidden. But as Jesus says in another context. uh, A thing is only hidden so that it might be revealed. Intertexts are designed to be found with study so that when one recognizes them, they will be seen as part of the larger reality which is acquired through study of the text in question. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, the glory of kings to search it out. So we have the first part of this is within a few hours, second part, got years now. Have been described in the period of several verses. So in Mark, we've 16 1 to 8 takes place in one morning. Well, then 16 9 to 20, it not only describes everything that happened from the time of Easter Sunday to Jesus' ascension into heaven. And notice the quotation of Psalm 110. When he sat down at the right hand of God, it's a quotation of Psalm 110. But it includes a narration essentially of the book of acts we don't think of it that way because it is so telescoped that it's just the apostles ministry that's um, but in terms of the chronological span mark 16 uh, uh, 20 well that's the entire apostolic age mark 1619 then lord jesus after he spoken to them was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of god and They went out and preached everywhere. So the Lord has gone before them. Now he's gone into heaven. He's been exalted to the right hand of God as high priest, as the one who mediates the divine presence to his people. That's what actually the language of going before is all about. And now the apostles mirror him in the other direction. Jesus having gone before them, having led them to the mountain, the apostles then go out from the mountain and bring people back to it. They went out, preached everywhere. The Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, the reference to signs here, arguably, I uh, would need to double check this and pursue this a little bit, but arguably refers to Isaiah 66, which in turn refers to Numbers 14, which would roll together with the new Exodus theme, which is a major part of Mark's Gospel. Uh, but the major point here in relation to the text that we've been looking at is that here in uh, uh, Mark 16, We have the first half is one day, a few hours even. The second half is years and years collapsed into a very short time span. So, arguably, the relationship between Genesis 29 and Mark 16 allows one to have a deeper look at why Mark has written the text that he has written and why jumping to textual corruption is jumping the gun, why we'll miss things that Mark wanted us to see in his gospel if we default to the uh, explanation of textual corruption as is true when we do source critical stuff in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so thank you for following through. This may be the end of my of a second video. Um, I don't know exactly how I'm going to put this together uh, because it's quite lengthy, but uh, I, I really hope you enjoyed um, going through this, this text with me, going through the nature of biblical theology with me. And I uh, I look forward to engaging with you more.